Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. This is the Daily Blast from the New Republic, produced and presented by the DSR Network. I'm your host, Greg Sargent. It's one of the strangest disconnects in our politics today. By many metrics, the economy is doing very well, far better than many analysts predicted. Yet President Biden's approval numbers are doing very badly, and Biden trails Donald Trump on the economy. On Friday, we were treated to an extraordinarily good jobs report. 353,000 jobs were created in January. Meanwhile, inflation is falling, growth is defying expectations, stock markets are breaking records, and consumer confidence is up. So we invited on New York Times columnist Paul Krugman to discuss this disconnect, which he has probed in a series of excellent columns in recent weeks. Paul, we're really excited to have you on. First, what's your takeaway from the latest economic news? Okay, uh, the you know the everybody who does this stuff says don't get too excited about one month's numbers. And then everybody gets really excited about one month's numbers. Uh, this was a a big uh, report. It was way bigger than most people expected. There were some funny things in the details. Things are probably not quite this good, but the main thing is the economy is chugging along, creating lots of jobs. Inflation is basically in the rearview mirror now, and not a hint of all of the terrible stuff that uh, you know that, that was supposed to be happening, according to a lot of people. Yeah, it's uh, it's really quite astounding, isn't it? I mean, how wrong some people were. Yeah, I mean, this is a uh, you know. It, it, there's a lot, a lot of people saying now, now is not the time to be going, you know, and talking about who was right and who was wrong. And 
funny that the people saying that are all the people who were wrong. Uh, this is uh, um, this has been kind of an epic fail of uh, you know certainly of, of uh, people like Donald Trump, um, but also we really do need to, uh, but not not the really most important thing in an election year. But at some point, we need to do a serious post mortem on how many. How so many economic analysts got this so wrong? I'm sure that'll be, lead to a lot of polite conversations on Twitter. Um, oh, sorry, X. Yes. Uh, okay, on to the big disconnect. One explanation you've given is that Republicans in particular tell pollsters they don't like the economy because of politics. You recently cited an amazing number. 71% of Republican respondents said the economy is getting worse. How important do you think this is in skewing the numbers on what overall Americans think? Well, it's basically, it's enormous. If you, you know, we have a couple of, they're not asking quite the same question. We have tracking polls uh, from YouGov and from Civics, uh, which I find, which give us a lot of information on the kind of partisan breakdown. Um, and with all of the usual caveats about polling, uh, Democrats and Republicans see completely different economies. Um, Democrats uh, have, they, they see an economy, they're not lockstep. Democrats were, were not too happy with the economy a year and a half ago when inflation was still running high, but have gotten much, much more favorable since then. And in fact, at this point, though, by, by most metrics are looking kind of like they think that they were okay. Uh, Republicans, uh, it's up a little bit, but not you know, still overwhelming negativity about the economy, uh, pretty much insen- insensitive to the facts. And that's, that is, basically, it is the story. I mean, independence, trouble is there aren't, there aren't any real independents. So uh, they're all really uh, Democrats and Republicans who won't say that they're, so the, um, so they're somewhere in between, but that's basically, so yeah, the, at this it, a few months ago, you could say there was still a kind of mystery. Why don't even Democrats think this economy is good? But that's gone away. At this point, it's it's all about the partisan divide. It's interesting. It sets up a bit of a test case for some of the analyses that are out there of what's happening with young voters. I, I think one of the explanations often offered for the drift of young voters away from Biden is the economy. What's your sense of what this latest economic news tells us about what the economy is going to be meaning to young people going forward? And is there a chance that that sort of softens their disapproval or, or sense of dissatisfaction in some sense? Okay, this is stepping out of my lane a bit, but I think it is important. Uh, the economy doesn't isn't an issue in isolation. People don't you know, we, uh, uh, pundits and, and the political science nerds and all of that, uh, think in terms of their categories. What do you think about the economy? What do you think about Gaza? What do you think, you know, the, uh, in the real world, real people who aren't obsessively concerned, they get a general sense. And the fact that the numbers on the economy or that the perception of the economy has improved, um, and will improve more as people sort of digest what we're seeing now, um, that spills over. It spills over directly into people's general assessment of Biden as a leader. It spills over into news coverage. Uh, the, uh, we had, ex- ex- there, you know, we can, we actually have measures of this too. Are there, um, and, you know, news coverage of the economy has been incredibly negative relative to the fundamentals, but that has changed a lot. 
in the last six months. So all of that feeds back. I think it, it shouldn't People shouldn't think better of Biden's foreign policy because the economy is doing well, but they will, in fact. And so I, I think it matters a lot. Yeah, these things are very hard to disentangle from, from one another. Back to Republicans for a second. I think the role of right-wing media and Republican elites in the kind of cloistering off of Republican opinion is undercovered. You've discussed it. Both those sources, right-wing media and, and GOP politicians, blare relentlessly that the economy is awful on every single day a Democrat is in the White House. But I have to ask, do you think Democrats fail to counterbalance the level of sheer noise that the right makes with their own message about how well the economy is doing? Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, there's Democrats and Democrats. Uh, um, the Even the... the uh, if, even the Biden administration, uh, you know, they just cannot bring themselves to be as as cheerly to the extent that the Republican administration would. Uh, there, there's a you know, the, this is partly the, the parties are very different, and and the the economic officials in the in the Biden administration are professionals who uh, don't want to seem too tacky. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of good things to be said about that, but it probably hurts their ability to get their message out. And then there are a lot of, you know, there's just not the same degree of loyalism. I mean, there are a fair number of people who are democratic leaning economic experts who nonetheless want to, you know, show their independence, show their credibility, or just plain, uh, um, you know, get, get clicks by talking about, uh, about bad stuff. So it, it's a, a tremendous difference in messaging uh, that that goes on. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's been described as the hack gap here and there. Yes, You're probably familiar exactly. with that language. I, I think there's also sort of a structural explanation here that I wanted to, to see what you think of. There's, there's almost a learned helplessness among Democrats. But I mean, so you have progressives who maybe are reluctant to praise the economy too much for understandable reasons. Maybe they think it discourages the uh, public desire for progressive economic change. But then you sort of have very pole, uh, kind of pole addicted political professionals who are listening to, to, to uh, who are talking to each other, consultants, the consultant class. And, and, and they, they sometimes say things like, oh, polls show the public doesn't like the term Bidenomics. So we'd better avoid talking up Biden's role because the public won't believe it. Can I ask, what I want to get from you is your take on that kind of argument as someone who relentlessly makes the case for an empirical focus on what the economy is actually doing. Oh, I get, I mean, it, you know, uh, uh, for the most part, I have a lot of freedom when I write, but I'm always a little bit questioned. Uh, by editors of the Times, don't you want to qualify? You know, and when I say something uh, positive, or you know, all uh, uh, aren't people upset by X, Y, and Z, and are, should you be? Shouldn't you be acknowledging that? So the poll obsession. Um, ask people what they care about, what matters to them. That is not actually a very good guide to what really matters to them. And the example that I've had in mind quite a lot is there, there's a lot of people, it ask people, do you care about inflation? And they will say, no, I care about the fact that stuff costs more. 
you know, don't tell me that prices are rising more slowly. I care about the fact that stuff costs more than it did in 2020. Um, that is not at all what the economic sentiment numbers are telling us. That if you look particularly at Democrats again, and the Republicans are relatively insensitive to whatever, but uh, Democratic in general, overall, um, views of the economy started turning up uh, in mid 2022, just as inflation started to come down. It is not, and among self-identified Democrats, they are now back to what they were, you know, at the sort of at the end of the Trump years. Um, so that people are not acting as if they refuse to be mollified by lower inflation as long as stuff actually costs more than it did four years ago. They're acting like, well, falling inflation uh, makes them feel better. So if you base your political strategy on what people say is going to change their view, you can be quite, quite wrong. Yeah, no, that is that is very interesting. I mean, the, the key takeaway from the latest economic numbers seems to me to be that if news like this keeps coming, it ultimately will change perceptions. If it hasn't already, as you point out, there's a disconnect between what uh, the middle of the country tells pollsters on specific questions and what they say on other questions that show underlying sentiments, right? So, Maybe yeah. it's, it's already changed perceptions, but at, at, at any rate, this kind of news has to have an impact. So Dems should throw their weight behind that process to what to whatever degree they can. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, if if you've got it flaunted, if if, um, um, if if there hasn't been an economy like this really since the uh, since the late clinton years right and of course that the 2000 election shows that that doesn't guarantee that your party wins but um this is there has i can't think of a time when uh, a party has been better positioned to say hey look our policies have worked and uh, and also to to say look People, a lot of people predicted doom if we did all these other good things we're doing. So that we couldn't afford to pursue clean energy. We couldn't afford to right. help families in distress. But we did all of that. And look, uh, we've got a soft landing. Inflation is down. We have full employment. Um, uh, yay us. Yeah, and I think they shouldn't hesitate to say that the, the former guy trashed the place completely, no matter what he says, right? Yeah. That the COVID, yeah. COVID was a, the 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 cat catastrophe it was because of his dereliction and that and that really you know, you know hurt a lot of people for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, uh, and this is actually hack gap again. A lot of people, you know, professional economists who are also Democratic leaning, are tend to say, "Well, okay, twenty twenty was the year of COVID and." Uh, there was a lot of economic damage that wasn't Trump's fault, which is kind of true, but, you know, that isn't going to be reciprocated. If you're going to have a situation where the other party right. um, wants to you know, wipe 2020 off the memory hole, but then blame the inflation of 2021-2022, which is by, largely explained by the aftermath of COVID, on Biden, you know, you, you got you got to say, look, uh, the reality is uh, Trump is the first president since Herbert Hoover to leave the White House with fewer Americans at work than when he came in. Right. Why on earth would you give this guy the reins back? 
Yeah. Right? Why and and why 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 give him a chance to to declare a mulligan on on what was in fact a, a disastrous year for the economy? Right. And and some rich richly deserved ridicule of them trying to play up the inflation that happened after that. Yeah, and it's uh, and it you know it it is probably I think it may work a little bit to point out that um, what Trump says about the economy is you know it has really reached the point of uh, who you're going to believe me or your own lying eyes. Yes, in you know, fact, he's out there saying gas is six seven dollars a gallon, and there are these giant signs up the everywhere saying that you know with a three in the, in the front. So uh, you know this has got to. Use it. I mean, it, there will be some significant fraction of the population for whom none of this. You know, the the, the uh, it doesn't matter what question you ask. Their answer basically is, "I hate Joe Biden." But that's not anywhere close to the majority of the country. Well, you actually opened the door to something I wanted to ask you about. I was going to ask you about what you pointed out in your in your column recently, which is that Trump just continues to say gas prices are really high when. This is directly contradicted by the enormous signs that mega voters see it at, at, uh, every day at gas stations. But I have a theory about this. Trump isn't trying to persuade voters to ignore empirical evidence all around them. Instead, he's giving them kind of a permission to blame Biden baselessly for things that aren't happening, happening because it'll, it'll create this kind of negative noise around Biden and help Trump. And of course, those voters are all happy to oblige. Does that sound right to you? Well, there's something. There's a kind of things are terrible by definition because there's a Democrat in the White House. And uh, I'm not sure that it actually it, it works to I'm not sure that anyone is persuaded. Uh, uh, although there is a lot of a lot of belief that terrible things are happening to everyone else. I mean, one of the really striking features of, of polling is everybody ask people, how are you doing financially? They say, fine. And ask, how is the economy doing? And they say, terrible. Um, and, and sort of intermediate, how are things in your local area? And it's somewhere in between. Uh, so, but I think a lot of it is just, it, it's more like a, a sort of two minutes hate on the economy. The, uh, the content doesn't matter so much as, uh, you know, we, we hate liberals. Right. It's a mobilizing device. It's a sort of a chance to kind of get out there and wave, wave the flag. But this, I think this has implications for economic discourse on the left that I want to ask you about. There's, there's a kind of constant claim out there that MAGA populism is fueled in some sense by economic discontent. This is a fraught subject, obviously, but I want to get your take on it. If the economy keeps booming and, and low end wages keep rising, and that doesn't take the steam out of MAGA anger if it doesn't move the needle for Dems among, say, working class whites. Where does that leave us? Okay, there. I mean, there, it's not a hundred percent for any explanation, but the the whole economic anxiety, the working class is turning to MAGA because it's it's hurting, uh, was clearly hugely overblown. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's, there, there's not, it, it, first of all, we see it doesn't move very much. And look, with, internationally, what you can see is that there are places where, that have got really strong social safety nets and take care of workers really well. And they have right-wing populist movements right. too. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there, there are a lot of, a lot of angry people in Finland and Denmark 
despite uh, them having welfare states that you know you American progressives could can't even dream about. Um, and it's no, so I, I that which doesn't mean it's all about the margins. Uh, is it you know it, if um, if five percent of people who voted for Trump in 2020 because they thought uh, that that he had been a successful economic manager uh, can be persuaded to vote for Biden with the realization that hey we really have full employment and rising real wages now you know that's that's uh, th- that has a huge impact on on the electoral outcome. Yeah. Well, you know, another another on on this score, I mean, Biden is obviously with the Inflation Reduction Act and and chips and the infrastructure bill, he's investing he has signed bills that invest big amounts of money in rebuilding the manufacturing base and kind of reinvigorating parts of red America that have been left behind and that we're constantly told are the reason that Trump was able to capitalize on economic discontent, right? It seems to me that this is another test of the of the of the economic anxiety thesis too. He's done all these things. Will it move the needle among uh, working class whites? I I don't know. I mean, do you expect it to? I am. I think it moves it a little bit, but it, it, the truth is, my. Uh, I think that the the big payoff to all of the political payoff to all of the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS Act investments is not so much that people in uh, uh, the decaying industrial Midwest are actually going to come home to Democrats. That may take, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen right away. Um, But there's a something that was really important that going beyond the election, which is that it is creating a constituency for continuing these things. So, you know, I, God help us all. If Trump is, is reelected, then, then, uh, but think, think ahead to some future uh, Republican president who isn't actually a, about to overthrow democracy, but who might very well want to just, you know, gut everything that Biden has accomplished, if at that point there are hundreds of thousands of people working in factories that owe their existence to Biden's climate policies, it's going to be a lot harder to undo it. It's going to be a little bit, a little bit like uh, Obamacare, which turns out to be extremely hard to reverse once people have grown accustomed to it. Right. Even but, though it was very unpopular at the outset, I don't even think you have that liability on the climate stuff. Yeah, that's the, the climate. Well, the problem with climate stuff is a, a is remark how remarkably few people have heard of it. And yeah, you find that not, and that's a partly media. I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, Biden tries, and it may, but I. One of the things that I'm sure I know that frustrates you, frustrates me, is there's a certain kind of progressive who, you know, has a kind of utopian vision of what we should be doing, and then says, "Well, Biden hasn't done anything," and it's like. They, he actually has by far the biggest climate policy uh, that that uh, well that we've ever done that anybody has done really, and uh, they don't know about it or they yeah. they dismiss it as somehow um, can't be important, but it is, and uh, maybe over time that sinks in. 
Yeah, well, I sure hope so. Um, I want to ask you about a terrific thread you recently posted on immigration. You pointed out that foreign-born workers are responsible for the drop in inflation. First, can you recap that case for us? Okay, so I've been looking. Obviously, um, immigration, you can see that visibly Republicans are shifting to immigration um, away from uh, the economy. The economy, even if you know, they'll still, they're still almost by rote say it's a terrible economy, but immigration is starting to take the emotional energy. Where there's real stuff about uh, people trying to cross at the border um, and you need you know, a better enforcement, it's asylum thing, and then Republicans incredibly cynically are sort of standing in the way of actually doing anything because they want it, they want the chaos as a political issue. But also, um, Beyond that, uh, the uh, and something actually I got from you a lot is that clearly underlying all of this is a desire not just to crack down on illegal immigration, but it's really legal immigration that their you know their goal is to basically stop foreigners from coming here at all, um, and that would be really catastrophic because once you start to look at the dynamics of this extremely good economy we've got. Um, Immigration is actually a central point. We, you know, how do we manage to to uh, add all of these jobs without inflation? Well, you know, how much of the increase in the labor force is is foreign-born workers? How much of the increase since 2020 is foreign-born workers? And the answer is all of it. Uh, every the U.S. overperformance relative to other advanced countries, U.S. ability to have this rapid growth without inflation rests critically on the availability of foreign-born workers, and, um, and, and no, they're not stealing American jobs. That's not how the economy works. It, instead, what happens is that all of these foreign-born workers are, they're not perfect substitutes for American workers. What they do is they open up space to run the economy hotter and almost certainly actually lead to higher employment among people born here. Right. And, and, and tighter, tighter labor markets, right? I, th- the reason your thread, I think, is so important is that the, the right-wing faux populist case for restricting low-skilled migrants is that they compete with native-born workers driving down wages. Yet right now, as you point out, large numbers of migrants have been entering the country, including under Biden's legal immigration uh, parole programs, which Republicans want to gut. And yet, despite those large influxes entering, labor markets remain tight, the economy's running pretty hot, and low-end wages are rising. What does that mean economically? And, and doesn't it really just kind of blow apart the populist argument? Yeah, and we've known this for, you know, there's been a lot of economic research over the years, and, and um, lots of natural experiments where you, for whatever reason, migrants come in. And uh, it overwhelmingly says that actually immigrant workers do not take away. They don't compete for native workers with jobs. They actually, um, they do somewhat different things. They expand the the pool. They create more room for growth. Um, And um, which we're we're definitely seeing in the economy as a whole right now. Um, And one also, by the way, communities. We, we worry about these declining communities where old manufacturing industries uh, went away. Uh, one of the things that unsung virtues of immigration is that immigrants are often um, the driving force behind revitalization 
of declining regions. Uh, there, there's been some reporting recently on you know, Topeka, Kansas, uh, is making a comeback thanks to immigrants. Uh, when I was very young, um, my very early years were spent in Utica, New York, uh, which it turns out is doing better than most of upstate upstate New York. Is you know, it's not New York City. It's very different. A lot of it is sort of Trump country and so on. Um, Utica has done better than a lot of the little the old industrial cities up there. Um, Largely because in the 90s, it got a big influx of Bosnian refugees. And so my old neighborhood is now Bosnian. Um, and it's keeping the community alive. I mean, uh, Chobani yogurt comes from the Utica area uh, because it's, it isn't really Greek yogurt. It's actually Bosnian yogurt. Uh. Uh, you know, so the, the all, but, and there are many stories like that. It, it turns out that uh, the, dynamism, the vitality of the U.S. economy uh, is very much aided by the inflow of, of immigrants. Yeah, you know, it's funny you bring up Utica. I don't remember exactly where that is, but I spent a fair amount of time in Western New York, and I love to talk about it. I mean, I, I, I went up to visit, I had an old friend who lived up in Geneva, which is really kind of the archetypal city that was hit hard in that way. I don't know if you know Geneva, but that part of the world really is pretty Trumpy in some respects, and and it's a it, it is interesting how different it is from downstate. Yeah, I mean it's a it, it's a big uh, well, it's it's like Pennsylvania, you know, the, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are one world, but uh, if you you know travel in between them, it's it, it's another. Um, but these are all places. See, they, um, look, people who come to the United States. Uh, in search of opportunity, uh, aside from the fact that just in general, more you know, growth is good uh, there, we're also, we're getting the best. We're getting people who are motivated, where there's a clear selection effect that the, mo the people who are most willing to uh, take a chance, most willing to make an effort, uh, adapt to a new culture, are the people who come to America. And it's not an accident that you know, we are the world's greatest immigrant nation, and that's how we became the world's greatest economy. Yeah, in fact, and it's interesting. You have some red state governors who are a little bit, a little bit distant, not exactly MAGA types, who are actually calling for more migrants to be sent to their states for this reason. But, but here again, I think Democrats could be doing the politics better. I get why Biden is gun shy on this issue right now. Right, the the imagery from the border is very bad. And the logistical problems are, are really, really difficult for all kinds of complicated reasons. But, but why isn't the president and Democrats, why aren't they saying what you said, that immigration is helping us, it's driving our economic boom, and that's exactly why we need to manage it better. Congressional Republicans should step up and help do that. I mean, it's a, just a, a clear case they could be making, and they're just not. Yeah, I, I think... I think that I can understand that they're nervous about, you know, making distinctions. But I would hope that um, it's possible to say, look, immigrants, good immigrants, legal immigrants, people who came here, played by the rules, uh, saw America as a, a beacon of hope and came here legally are one of our great strengths. And I want to continue that. And in order to do that, Congress needs to give me the, the funding, the uh, uh, 
the resources, the the rules that allow me to, you know, sort out the people who should be here and um, uh, and then talk about you know what a great thing it is. Yeah. Um, by the way, it, immigration is one of those classic cases. There there hasn't been as much recent polling as I'd like, but it turns out that the places that are really you know, hostile to immigrants are, of course, the places that hardly have any immigrants. So people are quite negative about immigration in Wyoming and West Virginia and Alabama. And uh, and then you go to Queens, and uh, which is, is half immigrant, and, uh, and the non-immigrants are fine with it. Yeah, I mean, look, the polling is pretty rough for Biden on this issue, but I think people forget that the polling was brutal for Donald Trump when he was president on this issue. In fact, when immigration was very salient and in the news during the border crises that hit him, his disapproval of his highly restrictionist policies were very high. But uh, anyway, I want to close with one last thing. I'm going to put down a marker and I want to see what you think of it. I think that Donald Trump at some point is going to take credit for all those green energy manufacturing jobs while also threatening to repeal the entire Biden climate agenda. What do you think? I mean, that's hardly even a risky prop, uh, prediction. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we already have plenty of examples of Republican members of Congress claiming credit in their districts for projects that they voted against, right? So sure, it's going to be a look at the revival of, uh, of manufacturing, look at all of the solar power. If, you know, if, if Trump, uh, God help us, if Trump, if Trump is back in office, uh, the, all of the, the boom in, in renewable energy will be an achievement that somehow he achieved through the uh, through his uh, his Jedi mind power over the force and and the fact that this is the result of subsidies uh, that that Biden introduced we've forgotten and at the same time he'll try to kill those things I mean it's yeah. uh, well he'll probably try to it, you know it'll be it'll be like like healthcare uh, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is is terrible, and I'm going to come up with a much better plan, which will be ready in two weeks, and we'll go through years and years of this plan being just two weeks away. A, an entirely reasonable prediction and very likely to happen. Paul Krugman, thank you so much for coming on with us. Okay, thanks, and take care. You've been listening to The Daily Blast with me, your host, Greg Sargent. The Daily Blast is a New Republic podcast and is produced by Riley Fessler and the DSR Network. 